Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? Ladies, welcome to another episode of Writer on the Road. Today I'm very, very excited to have with me the beautiful, petite blonde, Louisa Larkin. Uh, hello, Louisa. Oh, well, hello. I've never been introduced like that before. Oh. So, well, thank you very much. Oh, that, that's wonderful. Um, I think my readers, though, would know me as L.A. Larkin. I don't think actually that many people know um, that I am Louisa, but you know, that that's perfectly fine. Um, but yeah, thank you for such a very um, complimentary introduction. Yeah, I'm only halfway through it. I've got to, go, I've got to get to the other half yet. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the trouble I have with all my guests lately is I have to find a spot to start the conversation because we're always so busy talking that I say, can I hit the go button now? So Louisa and I have had a little bit of a um, pre-podcast chat, but I made her stop so that you guys can all listen as well. Um, Louisa or L.A. Larkin is a very, very interesting author and the reason I introduced her as um, blonde, petite and beautiful is because she writes psychological thrillers that tend to get a little bit violent or far more violent than, than I could even think of, let alone write about. And here's this beautiful woman writing these deep psychological crime thrillers. Uh, tell us about your latest book, Louisa. Tell us about Devour. So Devour is the first in a new series of action-adventure thrillers and it features investigative journalist Olivia Wolfe. Um, and she, is, you, when you first see her in the book, she's in Afghanistan and she's trying to meet up with a source in a very dangerous area in, in Afghanistan, in Kabul. It all goes terribly wrong um, and um, shortly afterwards she's sent off to Antarctica by her editor, one reason for which is that he actually believes she might be safer there. And of course, um, he is very wrong because when she gets to Antarctica and she joins a scientific research group who um, are drilling down through the great ice sheets down to what they believe is a buried lake um, and that they will find life in that buried lake that has been cut off from the rest of the world for millennia. Um, all I will say is that um, all hell breaks loose. So she certainly isn't safe in Antarctica and the story will take her from there to the UK and ultimately to the USA um, where she has to prevent a, um, a terrible event from happening. Yeah, now if you're not hooked by now, everybody, um, you never will be. Now there's a wonderful compliment on uh, Louise's uh website and it is in Larkin Michael Crichton has an heir apparent. The Guardian, the Guardian says this, could almost have been written by those great adventure thriller writers of yesteryear, Alistair MacLean and Hammond Innes. Now I've heard of a lot of those names. Uh, so Louisa how do you feel about being in such esteemed company uh, so very early in your writing career? Well I feel um, very proud but I also feel that there's a lot to live up to because they I mean, Michael Crichton, you know, as everybody probably remembers him most for Jurassic Park, but um, there were many, many brilliant books. 
um, and and you know Alistair McLean and so on. They really were the pioneers for this style of thriller, and so I do. I, look, I feel I've got a lot to to live up to, and and you know with each book that I write, I try and make sure that it is better than the last. So every time I write, it's like, well, I want to make this the best. Um, it possibly can be. Um, I think the reason why I'm likened particularly to Michael Crichton is because I tend to use science um, to fuel the stories. Um, Often I will be reading something such as with Devour, I follow the scientific research that goes on in Antarctica because I'm a very passionate supporter of, um, you know, preserving Antarctica. And I read um, a couple of years ago about a real expedition to a very remote part of Antarctica to discover new life and um, that this group was going to go there and they were going to drill down to what they believed was a a lake three kilometres beneath the ice and they believed that they would find life down there. And I just thought, wow, you know, what if this went horribly wrong? And what if... By doing so, they brought something to the surface that they really shouldn't have done. So, you know, this is how this is how the, th- the sort of thriller ideas come about. Yeah, and this is what we're going to unpack today, everybody. Um, we've had, as you know, we've had a, quite a few romance authors on, and we learned all about emotion and all those kinds of things, and th- between sweet and erotic and all those kinds of things as well. I'm curious today about writing a thriller. And where along the line you stop with the violence and the mayhem and and all the things that go along with it, all the blood and the guts and the gore. Louisa, uh, Sam and I did a a writing course with you, ought to be a few years ago now, up in the Whitsunday Writers Festival. That was fantastic. It was a a beautiful spot, everybody, if you're going to have a writing gig. It's got to be up there. Uh, Now, Louisa, one of the things Sam and I were unpacking this morning, some of the things that we could remember from that writing course And it was really, really interesting because it is several years ago now. But the thing that really stuck in Sam's mind and mine as well is the difference of different kinds of thrillers. And now I would have said one was the same as the other. You say you write psychological thrillers. thrillers. Can you tell us a little bit more about, for readers who are going to write these things, what do we need to focus on if it's a psychological thriller as opposed to an adventure thriller? Okay, so um, I... Uh, what's what's interesting is that uh, my books get um, defined in many ways, always as a thriller, um, sometimes as a crime thriller, sometimes as action, um, conspiracy, techno. I've been described as techno thriller, um, adventure because I uh, – and the adventure element is absolutely um, uh, true. It's when the location is really, really um, often in very uh, unusual, dangerous, um, uh, sometimes exotic locations um, where that environment plays a very important part in the story. So it's almost like a, the environment is almost like a character in itself. Um, and so if you think of the classics like the, like Wilbur Smith, for instance, um, you know, Wilbur Smith has written a lot of adventure stories where, you know, they're in dan- dangerous jungles or dangerous parts of Africa and, and so on. Um, so uh, the psychological part of it um, um, usually relates to having um, a character in there who is extremely threatening and um, insidious 
um, and it's often related to um, you know some, a, a psychopathic killer. Um, so uh, the kind of psychological thrillers you get the, these um, serial killers. They are um, very much have their own view of the world um, and um, they go out and take what they want and they put the central character and, and those that um, the central character care about in grave danger. So there is a psychological thriller element to Devour um, and the whole series because in Devour, one of the many threats to Olivia Wolfe is um, a stalker. Um, who um, not only invades um, the sanctity of her home, but is technically brilliant um, and is um, capable of um, what's called cyber stalking. And actually, cyber stalking is a big issue these days, as I'm sure your listeners are aware. And so, this cyber stalker and hacker is able to hack into her phone. Um, this stalker watches her through the webcam. Um, and Melinda will be actually aware that I have shut my laptop, so um, she can't see me. <laughs> so my webcam, I am very, uh, having heard and under, begin to understand what actually can be done through your webcam, it really is quite unnerving. Um, and just so that your listeners know, um, the webcam is often somewhere on your laptop or your monitor. Um, you may think you have it switched off. But a good hacker can turn it back on without you realizing it. And if you actually have um, your laptop um, or your, even your tablet somewhere such as um, your bedroom, be aware that they can see what you're doing when they like. Goodness gracious, everybody. Did you know? I don't know whether you knew that, but this is absolutely honest truth. And I, I, I um, have done a lot of research into this. And after that, and also I will tell you that Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook fame, there is a famous photograph of him in his office working. And if you actually um, can find this photograph, you will see that on his monitor at the very top, he has um, um, some a Band-Aid across his webcam. So even he is not immune and that he has a Band-Aid on, on his webcam so somebody can't be watching him when he doesn't realise it. It is. Now, our podcast is going to go in a whole different direction now, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was going to keep it really neat and tidy, but now you've opened up. Um, like I know, well, I know a little bit about the dark web um, only through what I, I gleaned through teachers talking in staff rooms and things. Um, I know nothing about um, cyber stalking and hacking and all those kinds of things, but you do. Now, as soon as you said webcams in bedrooms I thought well that opens up a whole new interesting um, sideline to writing romance but of course it can take on a whole new sinister uh, world can't it well no it is a very sinister world and the kind of people the people who will be doing that to you have they are not wishing you well um the 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 kind of cyber stalker that is in devour is um uh the kind of person who actually um, collects what they call as slaves and they um, hack into young women's laptops, computers, tablets, um, and they watch them. And if they find them entertaining, they will sell on the viewing rights. 
to this and they call them their slaves and they collect them and they actually make money out of it. And the people who are the victims to this have no idea that it's actually going on. Um, so, you know, it's 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 not something um, the people that do it, they're, they're not nice people. Um, so should I race upstairs now and get Sam and Liz to um, disable their webcams? Because for young teenage girls, this actually gets fairly scary, doesn't it? Yeah, it um look, I I'm not sure how effective disabling it is. I um I, and and look, what I would say is that whilst I do my best to research a story, I'm certainly not an expert on it. Um I am a, 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 funny enough for my next book, well the one after the next book. So the next book after Devour in the series is called Prey and then there's another one after that which I've already started work on. And that one is going to be a cybercrime um, thriller. And so I'm working with um, a retired detective from a cybercrime unit. And so he is telling me some of the things that they have had to deal with. But but I, I obviously need to make it clear to your listeners that I am not a guru on this and, I, and I'm not an expert on this. All I know is that um, people that are at all worried about this sort of thing just do um, do exactly what I've done. Either keep your, sh- your laptop lid shut um, or put a little sticky plaster over, over the webcam until you want to use it and then you can take it off. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Now, as as we're interviewing or as we're recording this, uh, we've just had a second hacking into all companies all over the world where oh, people are demanding money. That in itself scares the living daylights out of me. I know they're not interested in people like us and private computers, but how easily and quickly it would be to bring the world to a halt. Um, through this kind of activity? Oh, I think um, it's already happening. I mean, if you think about the US elections, uh, I don't think anyone in the in the world in, in senior government positions and, and in the Secret Service have any doubt that it's the Russians that hacked into the US um, elections. Um, there's been hacking into the Houses of Parliament. Um, I, I, think, I think the problem is that inevitably there are very, very clever people out there um, who are just as capable of dismantling the systems that are set up to defend privacy as those that build them. So there's this constant battle going on in the background that I don't think people know about, which which is basically the white hat hackers and the black hat hackers. And they are literally, literally pitching their wits against each other to outsmart each other. And, and, and um, it you know, it is going on. But at the same time, and this is where I think, you know, you need to balance things out because at the same time, for instance, when I'm writing as an author, I, I'm, 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 I take good, great pains to research my stories and I actually travel a lot. I really like to go and see and do the things um, as much as I possibly can because then I can bring them to life in my stories. So I will go to Antarctica you know, I'll, I'll go um, to various destinations or try out various techniques that I that I want to incorporate in the story. But the World Wide Web and all the information that is on there um, makes an author's life and 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 of course everybody's life a lot easier. So initially, I can use access to things such as YouTube and various other things to at least help me um, continue with my writing and set a story perhaps in a location that I haven't been to. So I think there are pros and cons, really. Um, you know, 
of of what this I suppose almost unlimited access to information um, means. Yeah, and it brings up that immediate question. Although what you just said uh, had me scribbling ten questions. Uh, the immediate question of when do you stop the research? Because I know the dark web will take you anywhere. I know cyber stalking, hacking um, and terrorism, all those kinds of things. There is so much out there. Where do you stop researching and when do you start writing? Well, that's a brilliant question. And um, I teach um, detective-based crime fiction and also thriller writing. I run courses regularly in it. And um, whenever I'm asked about research, I say um, research enough initially that you know your story has legs, i.e. It's go- it can be credible. You can make this credible um, because you don't want to start writing a story and then get to the point halfway through when you spent you know, months writing it thinking, well, actually, no, this is never going to work. So you just need enough information and then um, you start writing. And then when you've written your first draft and you have the basis of your story, your, your, your first draft down, then you can go back and research it more thoroughly. Because the one thing about research, and I'm just as much a victim of this as anybody else, is I find research fascinating particularly because I tend to set mine in like really exciting locations and they involve various self-defense techniques or um, medical survival techniques and I find all that very interesting. So I could get lost in researching this and I have to put a line in the sand and go, no, you've got to stop now. You know enough. Now just write the story and then go back and you can correct any mistakes in your next draft. So that, that's generally generally the advice that I, I tend to give people. Yeah, and you're fairly strict on your routines of writing too. I know even when we were with you, you had to go back to your room for a couple of hours to write some write some chapters that you'd promised mm. to an editor. That That's um, probably grist to the mill for, for a publishing writer is to stick to some kind of routine. Well, yes. I mean, I, I'm published the traditional route. Um, so um, that means that I go through a publisher um, and you have contracts with those publishers to deliver um, by a certain date. So what that does is that gives a deadline. Um, and the, the I think really um, authors tend to work at home or maybe in libraries or, you know, places that they find are quiet and comfortable to work. But they have to have some kind of routine, Um, just like, you know, I treat it as if I, um, if I was working in an office, you know, I uh, would be um, at my desk by a certain time and I'd be working and then I'd go and have a coffee break and then I'd go and have a lunch break and, you know what I mean, and I'd work. And so I I tend to organise myself as if, um, well, actually, I tell a lie. It tends to be much more extended than if I was working in an office because I tend to do things like social media, emails and things like that in the evening. And I keep the writing to the morning and daytime because I think that's probably, for me, the best time to be doing creative work. Yeah, and you touch on that um, very, very interesting subject of balancing between your own writing, yet you also teach both in London and in Sydney um, yes. detective um, fiction. How do you, what, are, what are the kinds of questions your students ask you when they have you in front of them and they see this now multi-published author who is very successful? Uh, what are the kinds of things that they're trying to get from you? 
Um, well, I think um, apart from being interested in the publishing process, um, because I think, you know, most people that attend my classes, and not all of them, I would say, but most of them want to try and get published. They want their books out there somewhere. And there are two routes, of course. There is the um, independent publishing, i.e. self-publishing, which is growing easier and easier these days in, to, to actually physically do. Um, and then there is the sort of the more traditional, which is through um, a publishing house. Um, so there are a lot of questions around that sort of thing. But really, the questions that I get the most of um, are things like, you know, how do you plot a novel? You know, how do you uh, develop and grow, create your, grow your characters? Um, how do you create suspense? You know, what is suspense? Um, you know, how do you how do you manage the pace of the story so that it grows and builds to a great climax at the end of the uh, at the end of the book? Um, how do you write? I mean, one of the big things that I talk about is your opening the opening chapter, the opening paragraph and the opening sentence of your book. Um, because if you sort of think about that, not only is that really what's going to convince a publisher that they want to publish you, so if you haven't been published before, but it's also like your reader, like the first time that you go on sale, they, they might wander into a bookshop and they'll see the cover and think, oh, that looks interesting. And then they'll... Um, probably read the back, the, what's written on the back of the, the, about the story. And then most people still then tend to open the front of the book and just read a little bit to, to get the style. And I think, therefore, if, if, if you've managed to hook that person with perhaps your first paragraph, then I think you've done well. And, that, and that's really what you have to do, particularly in um, – crime fiction because crime fiction and thrillers are read by people who want things to excite them they want them to move they want a puzzle they want a mystery um and people who tend to read thrillers are also not all but um and i certainly am they're quite um demanding and impatient readers they want it to move they want the you know i want to be wowed right from the beginning and i want to be continue to be wowed right the way through to the end so it's there's quite a lot of pressure when you're writing um to sort of think well you know am i doing this do i have them hooked can i keep them hooked so there's a there's, there's quite a lot of pressure on the authors who write crime fiction to do that yeah, and Sam seemed to remember a little tidbit from when we were up there, uh, up in the Sundays with you, that you tend to kill off a few minor characters very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do like to. Yes, I call them my um, dispensable characters or my disposable characters, whichever you like. Um, so, um, yeah, I think what, what's, um, what I tend to do is um, – there will be a character who is is of importance at the very end, the very beginning of the book, but um, who will die, and uh, it is their death which creates one of the mysteries. As in, why did they have to die? Who has killed them? Why did they get killed in that particular way, in that particular place? And it, it creates quite a mystery. Um, and it sort of sets the tone um, for the book. And yes, I have to confess, I think I'm thinking of my. 
pretty much all my books, yes, there is a death usually in the first chapter. So there you go, folks. You get a you get a death very early on, and it's usually not very nice. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can only take Sam somewhere twice. She remembers everything. It's um, oh, that's great. She's, I'm very impressed. I feel very honoured that she remembers. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, um, moving right along, your. Oliver Olivia Wolf, you. This is your first series. Your first novels were standalone. Was it your decision to start writing a series because that's very popular with crime thrillers? And I'm thinking of people like Mark Dawson, Dawson for us here in the indie world, and Joanna Penn. Uh, your Olivia Wolf, did you decide to go into it, move into series mode, or was that your publisher's decision? No, I wanted to do it because um, the great thing about a series character is that um, if things go well um, and people fall in love with that series character, they follow the character. And it means that as you write more books, your following grows. Um, It also means that um, it's, it's an interesting balance. In some ways, it means that say your second, third, fourth book, you've already created a foundation for, say, Olivia Wolfe. Um, and some of the many char- main characters, there are two very important male characters in Olivia Wolfe's life. Well, I'll actually say three. Um, one is a retired Metropolitan Police, um, very senior detective who is like a father figure to her um, and now runs a private investigator business and can provide her with um, some of the much needed information that um, she, even she may not have access to. Um so that's one person. And then another is a rival of hers um, who um, they are actually uh, – there's a fair degree of animosity between them in in Devour, in book one. Um, and he is a detective with Counterterrorism Command. And he's a fairly, shall we say, um, he goes about his work with real zeal, um, but he's fairly brutal about it. And – they clash on many an occasion, but their relationship is um, interesting. Um, um, uh, and the and the third uh, important character who is critical to devour is a Russian um, defector by the name of Vitaly Yushkov, um, who throughout the whole of devour and further on into the series, you may wonder whether or not he really is who he says he is, and if in fact he should be trusted um, because he has been accused of some terrible things. So then, the, so these characters will go on in, in, in many ways throughout the series. So you have that and Olivia Wolfe, who is very driven to expose the truth through her writing. And so she travels the world uncovering conspiracies and corruption and hunts down the criminals that not even, you know, the global um, you know, um, uh, police have been able to, in various countries, have been able to track down. Um, and and so she, this has become kind of like her mission. Um, but the the difficulty of a series is that you have to hold certain things back because if, as I do, I want particularly Olivia, to grow, Olivia Wolf to grow and develop, to reveal more slowly throughout the, the book about who she is and why she is and why she is so driven to do what she is. 
and why she lives this very odd life that she lives, which I won't go into right now because it'll spoil it for the book. She actually is, she's got a few demons and she lives a quite an unusual life. Um, and there is a dark side to her too. But um, what I what I discovered as I was writing Devour um, was that I wrote this sort of early draft and I sent it off, in fact, to my agent. And he said, you need to cut a whole load of this because you're revealing far too much already about Wolf. So you need to hold back because this is a series and some of your revelations are great, but keep them till later on. So it's, it, so writing a series is interesting. It's, it's like it's easier in some ways, but actually harder in others. Yeah, and you're always learning. As you said, um, oh, yes. you're on a new journey now, aren't you? Yes, yeah, and it, it, and, and that's what's, I think that's what keeps your writing fresh, um, you know, trying to do something a little bit differently. I mean, like, for instance, my first book, um, I had only one point of view, only one character's point of view, which is, which is actually very standard for thrillers. You usually have the hero's point of view. Um, say, for instance, in Thirst, I had um, the hero and the villain's point of view. So I had two points of view. Um, as an example now, say in Devour, um, there are three really key points of view. And in fact, I think at one point there's a fourth one too. Um, and and that becomes more complex because then you're writing in three or four different voices. And so that's something that um, I've really enjoyed um, you know, getting my teeth into sort of developing those voices and having more than one voice in in, in a book. Yeah, and everyone, they, those sorts of skills don't come easily. Uh, they to be able to juggle different voices and make characters sound different on the page. They speak differently. They use different rhythms and tones and expressions. That comes over time. And Louisa, I'm going to suggest that as you get into this uh, series, that compared to what you're how you wrote your first book and the time that it took to write your first book, that you're becoming, I guess, much more of an expert in manipulating words on the page. Yeah, it was interesting My because um, my husband is my first editor. Um, and as in, he's, it's not, this is not his job. <laughs> um, but he, uh, I'm very lucky that he is very well read and he loves fiction. Um, and um, he is the first person that reads the early draft, and he gives me fantastic feedback. Um, and he said, you know, every time you're you're working on a new book, your first draft is getting way better. So it's almost like it's um, – I suppose it's just like anything. The more you do, it's like if you're a sports person, the more you practice your techniques and, and, and the easier it becomes and the more, um, I guess, in a way more automatic perhaps that it that it comes. Um, so it, I think it's probably like any anything you choose to do and you want to do well, the more you practice it, the hopefully the better you get. Yeah, and that's interesting, everyone, um, because we hear a lot of stories about these pro prolific high-profile authors, um, and we always put Joanna Penn up there on a pedestal. She started off just like you and me. Louisa started off just like you and me. It takes time to become good. You don't just sort of churn these things out from day one. So there are so many stories out there, Louisa, and I'll talk to you about these in a minute, where... People who aren't, I guess, as savvy, they think they've got to churn these things out overnight. It just doesn't happen, does it? Oh, um, 
Mm, well, I think I think if you want to write a quality novel, I don't think so. No, um, I think um, you know I I, I want to write um, well. So um, I make sure I go through a number of drafts. Um, I perfect it. And this is even before it goes to the publisher um, who critiques it. Um, we go through a, we go through what's called a structural edit. Um, we go through then what's called a copy edit. Then we go through a proof stage. And these are all standard. This is not me being any way exceptional. This is the standard process that almost every publisher um with a publishing house would go through and so you can see how it, how it gets um you know it, it hopefully gets better and better um so no it isn't and i and i think um i think if you know i think it's worth spending the time on your first book if if that's what people are doing really however long it takes to get it to the best it possibly can be. I mean, I've, I've got a number of friends who are um, exceptionally good authors, but they started out, they had busy lives with family, young children. And I, one of them actually took 10 years to write her first book on the kitchen table with the kids screaming around her. Um, and But it's paid off because it was brilliant. Um, and, you know, so rushing these things is not always a good idea. Yeah, and to be the best. So we talk about that all the time, everyone, being the best you can be. Surround yourself with a team of professionals. Uh, now, I want to move along. I want to move to Crime Fest 2017, which you just got back from, and then Thriller Fest 2017 in New York coming up. You, I remember we spoke to you and you love going to these things. Can you share with us some of the excitement about being amongst Fellow, fellow authors who are as focused on crime and psychology and techno thrillers and everything as you are? Um, I think, um, see, I think the, the, the crime fiction festivals, are, there are, well, there are fantastic festivals in both Australia and the UK and, and of course, like Thriller Fest, which is in New York um, in, in, in the USA. Um, I think for me... What's great about them is you get a chance to meet your readers. Um, you know, they're in the audience. They're asking questions at book signings. They have a chance to chat to you. You know, often with the the ones, well, perhaps not here, but in the UK, there, you know, there's a lot of you know chatting around at the bar. You know, and people will come up to you, and it and and I find that really interesting because. Uh, you know, I love meeting readers who are as passionate about thrillers as I am, uh, you know, as, you know, they love reading them. Um, and you also get really sort of interesting comments as well. You think, oh, that's an, I, you know, I, I hadn't thought about that or I hadn't thought that, you know, a character would be seen that way. So you actually learn some interesting things. The, the other thing that I think is great about them from an author's perspective